This morning as we come to Matthew 27 and we see and hear the story about Jesus' crucifixion. There are so many angles that we could look at. I mean, just like a diamond, depending on which way you look at it and the light refracts through and you see the beauty of the diamond. There's so many angles that we could look at the cross through and, and marvel at. Um, and I want us to think about Hebrews 12.3. This is the, the angle we're going to take this morning. He says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. This week, um, I talked to a number of different people. A guy at the gym uh, who after 37 years lost his job. And he said, I woke up and it was like there was a sudden death in the family. I couldn't get out of bed for two weeks. I kind of lost my purpose and who I was. Uh, another guy shared about losing his daughter. Spent time with another brother who's watching his wife battle through cancer. Veritas, let's consider him who endured such hostility so that we won't grow weary and give up. This morning, I'm going to take you to the cross and I want you to stare at Jesus, to behold the man upon the cross. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. I want you to stare at Jesus and I want you to look at him and see him so that we will not grow weary, that we will persevere. And I want to zoom in specifically on verses 39 through 44 and I want us to see his last and maybe his greatest temptation while he was on earth. And I want us to see how he endured this last great temptation that he faced on the cross. And I want to reread just this, this little section starting in 39. It says, those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders, they mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. There were seven things that Jesus said on the cross. It's interesting in Matthew's account, he chooses not to focus as much on the final words of Jesus as much as he seeing things through the lens of the people that were there. And I want us to join the crowd and look at Jesus and hear what the crowd is saying and watch Jesus as he's crucified. So I want to take you back to Matthew 4. I want you to think about this. This is the temptation of Jesus before he began his public ministry. After Jesus was baptized at the end of Matthew chapter 3, a voice 
came from heaven. And it was the voice of the Father saying what? What did he say to Jesus Christ, his son? He said, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. What was the very first thing that happened after God spoke those words of affirmation into his son's soul and over him? What, what was the first thing that happened after God affirmed Jesus? Well, Satan came in chapter 4 verse 3. Satan came and what did he say to Jesus? If you are the son of man, take this rock and turn it into bread. Jesus at that point, 40 days fasting, praying, if you are truly the son of God, prove it. Take this loaf of bread or take this rock and turn it into a loaf of bread. Look at what we see as Jesus hangs on the cross, the temptation. What does the crowd say? If you are the son of God, verse 40, if you are the son of God, the crowd said this, the, the leaders, the church or the, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders said in verse 43, he trusts God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. It's like this, if you were really loved by God, you wouldn't be hanging on a cross right now. And they even had biblical evidence for this. Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 says, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. Jesus called Christ is hanging on a tree. Therefore, Jesus is under a curse. He is not loved by God. He is cursed by God. Wow. And Jesus hung there as they are hurling these insults and accusations against him. And they're lobbing Bible verses at him even. First thing I want you to see is what suffering does and how we are tempted in suffering. Number one, if you're taking notes, suffering tempts us to doubt our identity. The doubt sounds something like this. If you were really a Christian and had true faith, blank would not be happening to you. The blank, I don't know what you would put in that blank. How have you suffered? Maybe uh, you've been ridiculed by family. Yeah, ever since you became a follower of Jesus, no wonder this, this and that thing is happening. Uh, maybe you fill in the blank with some kind of sickness that you or someone you love has endured. Maybe it's the loss of a job like this guy that I talked to. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe it's your kids are not following Jesus. Maybe you failed at something. And you have this thought, like if I was really a Christian, this would not be happening to you. If I really believe God, this would not be happening to me. Uh, reminds me of the story of this, this um, man, Nabil Qureshi. Some of you guys have heard his story. He was a, uh, a Muslim and in college, he gave his life to Jesus. He became a powerful witness and he wrote a book called, uh, it was a New York Times bestselling book. It was titled, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Well, he became a great evangelist 
for Jesus. He traveled around, was with Ravi Zacharias Ministries, going to campuses, talking on radio shows, and telling the world about Jesus. At age 33, he got cancer. And many in the Muslim community came out and said, yes, it's because you converted to Christianity. You are under a curse. Nabil, along with the universal church, prayed for his healing. But in September of 2017, he died. And to many, that was proof that he was under a curse. One of the things we notice is that Jesus is not dying because he didn't have enough faith. He's dying because he has enough faith. The crowd said in verse 42, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. Now, now, twice in this, as they, as they shouted, all of the people in the crowd can see is this moment. This moment right now and they're shaking their heads. I can just imagine them looking at Jesus saying, what a waste. What a waste. I imagine someone in the crowd, he healed my child. He healed my daughter and now he can't even heal himself. What a waste. Like think of all the other people he could have healed. What a waste. It says they were shaking their heads. Yeah. Oh, what a shame. He could have been such a great political leader. He was just getting started in his career. I mean, think about it. He could have been greater than even David. David didn't do the things this guy did. And what a shame. He had to die so young. Jesus at 33 years old, at the beginning of his career, had so much promise and just so much wasted talent right up there on that tree. And they attack his identity. If you were really the son of man, this, this would not be happening to you. The second thing we see as we consider the insults from the crowd and the hostility that Jesus faced on the cross. Number two, suffering tempts us to doubt God's purposes. What a waste. Shaking our heads. Suffering tempts us to doubt God's purposes. And here's what that doubt sounds like. There is no meaning in this suffering. If you could go around to the crowd and say, so what do you think? Like fill out a little survey right now and just tell me what you think about this scene right here. Like where is the meaning in this? What is the purpose in this? They would just say, like there is no meaning in this. The only meaning, if anything, is that this guy's under a curse and he deserves this. In my philosophy of religion class, 
back in college, um, I had this professor named Doc. He was this old guy in his 70s, and this was actually the last philosophy class that he ever taught. He began the class in the fall with the question he wrote on the chalkboard, is belief in God a viable option in today's world? He said, in this class, we are going to answer this question. And we went through the five classic arguments for God's existence and the classic rebuttals for those arguments. And on the last day of class, he said, well, remember our question. Now we, were gonna, we are going to conclude our class by answering the question. And he took out some pictures and he handed them around the room. And one of the pictures was the picture of uh, the famous picture Pulitzer Prize winning picture of the famine stricken boy who had collapsed on the ground with a vulture in the background waiting for this child to die. And he handed around this picture and he said, if there were a God, he would not allow this. You see, He's either not all-powerful, like he sees this picture and he wants to do something, but he can't. He wants to come in and break through and do something for this child, but he's unable because he's not all-powerful. Or, even worse, our only other possibility is he is all-powerful, but he's not good. He could do something. He is all-powerful, and he could do something, but he's not. And therefore, he's not good. These are your options. There is no meaning in this picture. Therefore, there is no God. Four months after winning the Pulitzer Prize, the photographer of that picture committed suicide. Because he himself could find no meaning in what he saw and what he captured for the world to see. Here's the part about this scene in Matthew 27 that blows my mind. When we suffer or when we see suffering, we are helpless. We're helpless. We can do nothing to heal and to save and to change the outcome, but Jesus... He had the power to come down. This is just mind-blowing. Like, he could have saved himself. Do you remember what he said back in last week in chapter 26? When Peter whips out his sword. Peter, could I not Call down more than 10 legions of angels. A legion is like a Roman battalion or something like three to 
6,000 times. Jesus is saying, Peter, don't you know that I could call 50,000 angelic beings right now? Put away your sword. Don't you know that as Jesus hung there on the cross, he was not helpless. He was not like us. He could have saved himself. This was the last great temptation of Christ. That he hung there and he became obedient to death. Why? Why did he choose not to just show his power right there? Why? Why was he unwilling to call 50,000 angels to rescue him? He tells us, he says in 26 verse 54, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? There was a theologian that said there were over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled through the life of Christ I went through chapter 27 and counted the number of fulfilled prophecies. 13 is what I counted. Uh, prophecies like Jeremiah 32 and Zechariah 11 that said the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And we see that in verses 9 and 10. Genesis 3.15 we see that the Messiah would come and crush evil but he would be struck in the process. We see that in verse 35. Isaiah chapter 50 says that he, the Messiah would be beaten and spat upon. We see that in verse 30 that, that, that they were spitting on Jesus. Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah would be rejected, would be oppressed, would be silent before his accusers. Matthew's careful to tell us Jesus was silent silent when the accusations came against him. Psalm 22 said that the Messiah would be mocked by people shaking their heads. Matthew tells us the crowd, they were shaking their heads as they looked at this bloody mess on the tree. Verse 39 says that he was forsaken and he would cry out to God just as Psalm 22 said, Again, Psalm 22, 18 says they, do, they would be casting lots for his clothing, which is what happens in verse 35. Isaiah 53 finally says he would die, he would be buried in a wealthy man's tomb, which is how our passage ends. Do you see? Jesus is just following a script. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this week, this way? Last week, Brian said 19 times in chapter 26, it uses some form of the word betray. What, what Matthew's saying is he's wanting to raise the tension of the injustice, of the betrayal. He's wanting us to see how pointless this seemed from the crowd's perspective, how wrong this was. And he wants to ask this question, was there meaning in his suffering? We often ask the question, why do, good th why do bad things happen to good people? 
you at some point have probably asked that question like, that is such a good person. Why would that have happened to them? Like of all the people on earth that deserve that, this person is a good person. They do not deserve this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, this only happened one time. Jesus was good. Truly good. And a very bad thing happened to him. And if God can bring good out of this, I mean, there's no worse possible situation than this. We are looking at Jesus on the cross this morning. If God can bring good out of the cross and his suffering, then he can bring meaning from ours. Why was Jesus obedient to death? Why did he choose to die when he could have saved himself? When you go back to Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, Remember how this whole book started. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. This whole time, God was on a rescue mission to save the world, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Like this was not a helpless victim. This is the God of the universe choosing to endure the suffering to go to the cross so that in this he could save the world. There's one theologian that said it was love not the nails that held him there. What held Jesus on the cross was his love for you. He sees humanity and he dies for them. God so loved the world that he gave his son. You are to name him Jesus. Yeshua, that name means God to the rescue. God save us. Because he will save his people from their sins. Here's the lie. When we suffer, we, we hear this lie. And in that picture we see this. There is no meaning in this suffering. But here's what's true. There is more meaning than I can comprehend. What is that thing in your life that you're looking at and saying, there is no possible meaning in this? We are joining the crowd this morning and we are looking at this man on the cross. Isaiah 53 said he was so disfigured. He was marred beyond human likeness. You couldn't even tell that it was a human being up on that tree. He was so, it was a mess. And as we look at that picture of our Savior on the cross, what is the picture that you're looking at? And saying, I see no meaning in this. And what the cross does for us is 
it reminds us that whatever we are looking at, we are seeing more meaning than we can possibly comprehend. God is infinitely wise. And in this thing that we see no meaning in actually becomes the means through which he will save the world and restore paradise that was lost. And I want you to see verse 46, what happens next. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This is amazing, this picture. You guys, back in chapter 26, Jesus was praying that God would save him from the cross. Remember that? God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to endure the shame. He's praying with tears of blood. God, let there be some other way. And now, Matthew records his last moments on the cross. Probably sometime around 9 o'clock in the morning, they, they hung him on the cross. And then, with his very last breath, like six hours later, usually they would die of asphyxiation because they could no longer pull themselves up. And so, he's, he's dying because he can't breathe anymore. And he's using one of his last breaths. This is probably in the last, like, minute or two of his life. He says, he quotes Psalm 22, and he says, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? I think what we have here in this moment is permission. Permission for us to stare at whatever picture of suffering it is in our lives and say, why? If Jesus can cry out with one of his last breaths, why? I think we who don't have all knowledge and all wisdom can look at our picture of suffering and say, why? We don't get it. We don't understand. We have permission to be confused. Jesus knew the end of the story. We know the end of the story, resurrection. But that feeling that like, I don't get this. The disappointment, the anger, the frustration, the confusion, like Jesus gets it. So here's the conclusion as we think about, we look at Jesus, we behold the man of the, on the cross, and we see the temptations about if you're the son of man, that questioning identity. We see the questioning of purpose. Yeah, he would save himself if he was really God. Here's the conclusion I come to as I look at Jesus it's this, we don't live by explanations. We live by promises. God does not explain to us why. He doesn't give us the full explanation of why. But he leaves us with these great and precious promises. 
what are those promises? There's two as we close here that I want you to remember. First Peter 2, 21. He says this. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Wow. The cross, that's an example for us hmm, that you should follow in his steps. Here's how you should follow. He did not commit sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Wow. You know what I do when I get insulted? I insult back. When someone lobs a missile of slander toward me, you know what I do? I shoot it right back. When I'm hurt by somebody, I hurt them back. That's what we do. That's, that's our human nature. Not Jesus. He was silent. Why was he silent? Because he entrusted all of that slander and ridicule and all those insults. He entrusted that back to God. That's what Peter says. Here's the promise we see from 1 Peter 2. God will sort it all out. As you stare at the picture that doesn't make sense to you, whatever that picture is of suffering in your life, here's what you have to remember. God will sort this out. God will figure this out. And how Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done, is not a cop-out, right? It's not a lack of faith. It's the faith in an infinitely smart God. It's the faith to look at this picture and say, whoa, I can't find any meaning, but also, I'm not God, right? It's that faith that looks at that picture and says, God will sort this out. That little child, and I, I want to say to my professor, and I, I, had one last opportunity to talk to him when the class was over. Uh, it, was, it was so interesting because one of my friends who's a believer, uh, he raised his hand in that class and he said, um, Doc, what is your hope? And there was this awkward silence in the room and Doc just kind of put his head down. I was like, ah, anyway, so. And he didn't answer the question. And he called my friend back at like six in the morning. Super awkward to get a call from your professor at six in the morning. <laughs> Phone rings. My friend picks it up and Doc says, I've been thinking about your question all night and I don't have an answer for you. And so I was like, sweet. So I talked to Doc, emailed him like, hey, let's hang out. I would love to talk to you. So this is like after class, after finals week. So we went to the local pub, got a drink. We're sitting there. I'm like, Doc, I also thinking about your question, that question about hope. And I began to tell him about Jesus. 
started sharing the gospel like, Doc, like you know. You know, if the house is on fire and you have the option to save the child or the pet, like you save the child, right? Why? Because like the image of God is in that house and you need to save that. Like we're created by God. He loves us. He made us. And talk to him about, and as soon as I started talking about sin, I was like, but, but you know, all of us have sinned. He slammed his beer on the table. He stood up. He walked out. And I never saw him again. And it's crazy. I was, uh, Letha was in nursing school. Um, and I remember I, I went and, and was studying while she was in class. And, and uh, I took out the newspaper. Like I never read the newspaper. And there I saw it. Like It was like six months after our conversation. Um, just reading through the obituaries for some odd reason. And there it was. E.D. Klemke. And I just, my heart just sank. Doc refused to believe in Jesus because he could find no meaning in suffering. But this first promise we believe about God is that he, we can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. What Peter is saying is God will sort it all out. Every wrong will be made right. It's going to be beautiful. And if you could see that little child that was in that picture, if you could see him now, they actually went back and found that child. He died at age six, like a few years later. The photographer went and shooed away the vultures. That little boy passed away six years later. But I promise you, if you could see him now, he would be a being so beautiful, you would be tempted to bow down and worship because of the glory that God has for this child. We have no way of comprehending what God has in store. And Peter's saying, when we endure suffering, we trust that God judges justly. There's a psalm that says, righteousness and justice is the foundation of God's throne. Like, he will sort it all out. Promise number two. Hebrews 12. Back to this text that we started with. We'll just land here. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and give up. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He, Jesus hated the suffering. Like this was not enjoyable. This was not fun. He wasn't smiling. He wasn't laughing. He hated the shame of that moment. He scorned the shame. So how did he endure it? The writers of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. For the joy that was on the other side of the suffering, he endured. He saw 
the glory that was to come. The context of chapter 12 is Hebrews 11. All of these glorious saints that went ahead of all of us, this great cloud of witnesses, they died. None of them received what they were promised, but all of them believed in the resurrection of the, of the dead. They believed that they would be raised from the dead. Jesus had the same faith. Promise number two, on the other side of death is eternal joy. I think the most important promise to remember when we are suffering is to remember future glory. If you are in the middle of suffering, go to the end of the book and read the end. Read Revelation 19, 20, 21, 22. Like read it and see how the story ends and read about the wedding feast that is to come. Turn your eyes. to the future glory and next week uh, Jeff is going to teach on the resurrection and we've got more to come next week but for this morning we're beholding the man upon the cross and I just want to end with the question what is the picture of suffering that you're looking at right now? What is the suffering that you've experienced that to you from a human perspective has no meaning? What is that picture? And as you think about that picture, we're going to close with communion. And you can come up and as you come up to the, just remember the cross of Christ. And you can remember that if God can bring meaning from the suffering of Jesus, he can bring meaning from yours. So we invite you as the worship team leads us to come to the tables. They're all around the room, gluten-free in the back by the sound booth. And you can take the bread that symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us. And you can dip it in the cup which represents the blood of Christ shed for us. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray. just want to um, remind us of this truth as we look at the cross. Remember that um, death was not God's original design. Uh, Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. That it was sin that entered the world that caused death. And there's only one possible way for death to be good news. And that is the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Death without Jesus is not good news. But if you know Jesus, you have nothing to fear. And so, as we... Um, as we think about coming to the table, some of you, I just want to ask the question, have you ever come to the point in your life where you looked at Jesus and you believed in him? 
you fell on your knees and you repented of your sin. You turned away from your sin and you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I am lost without you. I need you. I want you in my life. I surrender to you. Save me, Jesus. And you trust in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Have you taken that step this morning of faith? This is the only way for death to be good news is if you have trusted Jesus. And I invite you to do that. If you've never taken communion because maybe you thought you weren't worthy, you weren't good enough, this is your first time in church and you don't know what this means, what I'm telling you is come, receive Jesus, receive this gift of Jesus, come. It will cost you nothing. He did it all for you. Because he loved you. Come, receive the gift. Let's do this. In remembrance of him, let's behold the lamb. Let's receive him.